Shall we pray? Lord, you are awesome here. You are a wonderful, loving, communing God, and it is great to know you through your Son, Jesus. Lord, uh, by your Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Let your word come alive. Help us to be changed as a result of our encounter with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, before I launch into message, just some uh, news on the personal front. Our daughter Meredith gave birth Friday to a baby boy, Matteo Jonathan, uh, eight pounds, 12 ounces. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, and 22 inches long, and that makes uh, three, three boys and a girl for Meredith, and that's uh, Davis has a son from a previous marriage, so that makes me grandpa, at least Adonijah too calls me grandpa, to 14, so I'm very blessed, so thankful for that. Uh, today's message is loving my Muslim neighbor, the first section, six degrees to a smaller world. It's a small world after all, smaller probably than we even realize. Have you heard of six degrees of separation? It's based on the idea that all people on average are six or fewer social connections away from each other. There's even a parlor game called Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, in which you can theoretically link anyone in Hollywood with the prolific American actor Kevin Bacon within six steps. Check out oracleofbacon.org. Sometimes it would surprise us to know just how closely we are connected to a particular human. This was dramatically brought home to me this past week. You see, back in 2017, my father, who was 96 at the time and a resident at Mitchell Nursing Home, turned suddenly in his bare feet, lost his balance on the smooth floor, fell and broke his hip. In the ensuing months, he learned to walk again with the help of a physiotherapist who circulated amongst various care homes in the region. I have a couple of emails from that time reporting to my family about Dad's progress with the help of his healthcare team. Eventually, he made a good recovery. Fast forward to this past Sunday in London, Ontario, and what one article described as the worst mass killing in the city's history, a pickup truck jumped a curb and struck five Muslim pedestrians, killing the two parents in their 40s, the man's mother in her 70s, their teenage daughter with only their nine-year-old son surviving, though injured. A man was Salman Afzal, who had been my dad's physiotherapist. At first, when I heard of the crime, you think, oh, how terrible. But later, when I saw the name and realized he had worked as a physiotherapist at local nursing homes, the puzzle pieces began to fit together. I went back and checked my emails. There was his name. I had, in fact, met this person. He had spent time helping my father recuperate. That makes even more impact. You feel personally connected to the tragedy. What a loss. The administrator for Ritz Lutheran Villa said, We're completely devastated. Salman worked in our organization for seven years. He was an integral part of our team. He was kind and caring. He was well-respected and always had a smile and positive outlook. He probably cared for hundreds of seniors over the years, mums and dads and grandparents in Oxford, Wellington, Middlesex, Huron, and Perth counties. He worked at many, many long-term care homes in our region. 
Solomon's wife, was a grad student at Western in civil engineering, working on remediating contaminated soil. Previously in Pakistan, she had worked as a civil engineer on a hydropower project for three years. A civil engineering prophet, Western, describes her as an angel. She was so kind, so considerate, so polite. Such a loss, such a waste. Hate makes waste. It's hard to fathom what could have prompted the driver to commit such a crime. Yes, they were of different nationality. Yes, they were Muslim, but they were people just the same. So today I'd like to look at the topic, loving my Muslim neighbor through a biblical lens. God's self-giving love for each of us sinners, though we were at enmity with him, motivates us to love those who are unlike us. Next section, the leading law. Jesus clearly placed loving one's neighbor at the top of the list. Once a teacher of the Jewish law asked Jesus, which is the most important of all the commandments? Mark 12, 29 to 31. The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Did you hear that last bit? No commandment greater. The whole law swings on them like a door on its hinges. It's interesting, Jesus seems to link the two as if they belong together, sort of implying that if you genuinely love God, you will also love his creation, your neighbor, the person next to you, whoever you come in contact with. The Apostle Paul sort of echoes this in Romans 13, 8 to 10. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. Whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The root is love. If love is how you approach the relationship, the fruit or outflow won't be destructive, things like adultery, murder, stealing, etc., but positive, not harming, but helping. James, in his letter to the church, also emphasizes the priority of loving our neighbor, calling it the royal law, James 2.8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. Royal, like it's the king or queen over the other laws. In his context, James notes we won't show favoritism, being influenced unduly by whether a person is rich or poor, for example. Our passage from Leviticus 19 offers several examples of what loving our neighbor might look like. Verse 10, leave gleanings of your harvest for the poor and alien. Now, alien here, not in the sense of from outer space, but alien as in from another country. Verse 13, don't defraud or rob your neighbor. Respect your right to ownership. Verse 15, don't pervert justice by showing partiality, but judge your neighbor fairly. 
Verse 16, don't do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. There's an obligation to be caring, protecting. Verse 18, to which Jesus later makes direct reference, says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What's love mean in that context? Not seeking revenge or bearing a grudge. Don't get drawn into evil for evil or tit for tat. So that must involve forgiveness, grace, absorbing the loss, overlooking the injury or a refusal to try and get even. If they've wronged you, let it go. But we need help to do that. The help of him who died on the cross to let us off the hook in the eyes of perfect divine justice. Now, you might be saying to yourself, I don't have any prejudice toward Muslims. In fact, I've never really had much to do with one. But it's easy to fall into the pattern of preferring those who are like us. We can relate to them. They sound like we do. It's easier to understand them. They sound familiar. Sorting through one's accent can be a frustrating barrier to communication. Admit it. When you phone for help with some issue and the person on the call center on the other end obviously hails from some other region and is trickier to understand, don't you secretly want to ask, is there anyone there who speaks English the way I do? Jeff Bennett was a PC candidate in the area of London West in 2014. He followed the previous candidate, Ali Chabar, and noticed quite a few expressions of racism in the people he encountered. Even members of his campaign team expressed relief that Jeff, not Ali, had become the candidate, just as they tried to volunteer a year earlier, but the campaign office felt like the Middle East, they said. When Jeff was on the trail door knocking, people would respond with things like, boy, are we happy to see you at our door this election. And I can tell by looking at you that Jeff Bennett is a candidate I can support. Such obvious prejudice against visible minorities. Bennett reflects, I've come face to face with anti-Muslim attitudes in London, Ontario. These people who'd never met me saw nothing special in me. They were happy only that my name was English and that my skin was white. Next section, pleasing my neighbor out of deference to God. In contrast to such prejudice, love goes beyond merely having a positive disposition or attitude towards someone. Love actually gets behind them and serves them, puts their concerns and needs first. Writing about our freedom in Christ to the church at Galatia, the Apostle Paul noted our freedom as Christians becomes harnessed to another's betterment. Galatians 5.13 You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Here it is again. Love your neighbor as yourself. So love motivates you to serve the other person rather than just emphasize your freedom as if they're not your concern. Cain asked defensively, am I my brother's keeper? After killing Abel, Genesis 4 9. 
Love would say, yes, you are your brother's keeper. Love cares for one's sister or brother. Paul also puts care for others in terms of pleasing them rather than just pleasing ourselves. This requires a certain death to self in order to forego your own happiness or pleasure so that others are built up. Romans 15.2 Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. We are to please our neighbor for their good, so they may be built up, strengthened, helped, edified. This in spite of a culture whose siren call is always, please yourself. Now, there's nothing innate in our fallen nature that would prompt us to put another person's interests ahead of our own. We're born selfish, born predisposed to look out for number one. What then can be powerful enough to motivate us to die to self-interest and please our neighbor rather than please ourselves? The prior fact that Jesus, the very Son of God, chose to put us first, to die for our sakes. When it says in this verse at the end there, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me, who is the you? Well, I, I used to suppose it was God the Father, but whom is Jesus stepping in on behalf of? Us sinners. Satan the accuser was poised to insult us, rightly so, for our sins, but Jesus took our penalty went to the cross in our place, purchased our forgiveness by becoming a substitute in our stead. So the accuser's insults fell on him instead of us. It's that immense grace alone that can power forgiveness of others and pleasing our neighbor instead of pleasing ourselves. Another dimension of loving our neighbor concerns pride and humility. Who's number one in our lives? When we recall God is number one, when we fear and revere and honor him as ultimate instead of ourselves, love flows better to others. James 4, 11, and 12 says, Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you? Are you above the law as if you invented it and deserve to judge it? So slandering or judging, condemning, looking down on another person supposes we ourselves are above the law, God's ordinance that we are to love others. Go back to Leviticus 19 a moment. These injunctions to care for our neighbor are shot through with reminders that God is God and we're not. Leviticus 19.14 Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Verse 16b Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
And again in verses 33 to 34, when an alien lives with you in your land, do not mistreat him. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself, for you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. It's implying that when we remember to put God foremost in our consciousness, that will help us recognize the value of the other person, will empower us to put our, their interests above our own and serve them in love. You know, the driver of that pickup truck looked at that family grouping, walking peacefully along, and saw people that were different from them, different skin tone, different dress, different origin and customs. But love looks at them and sees people created in God's image, what's traditionally known as the imago dei. Fundamentally, they are still humans fashioned by God, into whom he has breathed life and crafted unique souls. We treat them with extra care and respect because we revere him, his reverberating, I am Yahweh, your God who delivered us out of slavery to sin and death. Verse 14 warns us not to curse the deaf or play a mean trick on the blind, but fear your God, I am the Lord. We see his handiwork in them, his interest in them. He has a purpose and destiny for their lives. His image and imprint is somehow stamped upon them indelibly. They are to be treated worthily, for they are his image bearers. Last section, loving without an agenda. We are to love our neighbor. We are to love our Muslim neighbor. That doesn't mean we don't seek opportunities to witness to Christ. According to the Oxford Dictionary, the word Islam means submission from Arabic aslama, submit to God. The Christian concept of a triune God in whom is embedded the dynamic of relationship and love and sharing is quite different from the monolithic Allah of Islam, whose will is final and must be submitted to. Muslims can only hope their good deeds will outweigh their bad deeds on the Day of Judgment. They have no assurance of that. There's no grace involved. So some aspects of Christianity would be very appealing. But... It's important to build a relationship first, to establish trust. An acquaintance posted on social media this week a meme that said, I really don't talk to anybody how I used to. All that friend stuff faded when I realized people only love you when it's beneficial. Do we only love others when it's beneficial, when we get something out of it? Do we only love with an agenda? Living in Huron County, it's common not to have Muslim neighbors. We're not that diverse a population compared to urban centers. So I reached out to my son Keith and daughter-in-law Darcy, who I knew had Muslim neighbors when they lived in Bar Haven, a suburb just south of Ottawa. Here are some questions I drafted and their responses to help us understand what loving a Muslim neighbor might look like, practically speaking. Question. Can you describe in the most general terms, without identifying particulars, the Muslim neighbors you had? For example, number in the family, what they worked at, interests and hobbies, you're aware of how you got to know them. Darcy said, Our three immediate neighbors in Barhaven were Muslim with varying degrees of observance. We interacted with all of them in neighborly ways. 
One family was a young couple, another a bachelor who had his mother arrange his marriage back in Pakistan, and a family of five. We got to see both young couples welcome their first child into their homes. We got to know them the way anyone gets to know their neighbors. The kids rode bikes on our street with the other kids. They drew roads, shopping malls, parking spots on our street in sidewalk chalk. They ate freezies together in our front yard. Our neighbor right next to us happened to smoke and always did it outside, so we would chat while I watched the kids from the front step. We'd chat with a neighbor on the other side of us while he watered his lawn. The family in particular was lovely to interact with. One day they were unloading after a grocery run and I happened to wave hello to them. The dad came over and gave me a whole box of mangoes. When we moved away, they gifted our kids a new scooter. One day during Ramadan, the mom was calling for her son to come inside because it was time for prayers and he wasn't listening. She didn't have her hijab on, and I could tell that she was trying to decide what to do, so I just offered to get the boy for her. She was so thankful. She had been cleaning bathrooms and just didn't need one more thing to do. Their question, what are some lifestyle patterns they took part in that would likely be typical of most Muslims in Canada? Darcy said, I know there are five pillars to Islam, one being Ramadan, the 29 or 30 day fast that takes place each year. It signifies the revealing of the Quran to the Prophet Muhammad. The second I have witnessed my friends experience is Eid. There are two Eids, that's E-I-D. Little Eid or Eid al-Fitr is the festival of breaking the fast at the end of Ramadan. The other and longer festival is Eid al-Adha, the festival of the sacrifice which comes at the end of Hajj, that's the annual pilgrimage to Mecca. This festival remembers the story of Abraham and the command to sacrifice his son. Only in the Quran, the son is Ishmael, not Isaac. Keith, my son, said, I had a colleague at Christian Horizons who participated in Ramadan, as I believe most Muslims do. Whether it is a practice like fasting until sundown or praying multiple times a day, the way many Muslims practice their faith in the community has been an example to me of what dedication and community formation can look like. It is reassuring to me that people also wrestle with their religious practices as I do with mine. Just because so many are faithful in doing it does not mean it is easy, especially depending on people's jobs and responsibilities. This past year with COVID, it took a lot of dedication for Muslims who work in healthcare to keep their fast, even though they might be working long and tiring shifts at hospitals, keeping people healthy and well. Another question. Nabil Qureshi, whose book I recommend you, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, a great book. Nabil Qureshi emphasized that Muslim culture is especially integrated with her faith. Would you agree or have seen any evidence of this? Darcy says, absolutely. I had more in common with the Muslim homeschooling mamas than I did with the secular ones. Faith is so important to them and their educational philosophy. During an art lesson in a Muslim home, the mum and I were talking about trying to integrate character development into our curriculum. I mentioned I was using a book by Clay and Sally Clarkson, 24 Family Ways, and not only did she borrow it and supplement the Bible passages with others from the Quran, she loved that she could show her kids, look, it isn't just us. Other kids have to do this stuff too. It was a humbling moment for me to see someone who I had assumed wouldn't be interested in something Bible-based 
be so open and engaged in exploring all avenues towards God. That has been my experience with all of the Muslim homeschool mums. Jesus is a historical figure in their faith. The Bible is a holy text. They definitely hold different theological positions on who Jesus was, and I'm not entirely sure our Bibles have all the same books and hold the same place of honor on the bookshelf, but they were passionate and open to learning and friendship and were highly invested in the education of their children. Keith says, I believe that culture plays a significant role in all of our faith journeys. Unfortunately for many of us, it is an unconscious role, and adopting the norms of the culture we find ourselves in often makes some of our behaviors and thought patterns difficult to align with Jesus' lordship in our lives. Racism, sexism, ableism, etc. are often implicit in our cultural norms, and recognizing this is a first step in cultivating a Jesus-shaped community life that refuses to bow to the cult of normalcy. Question. If we find ourselves sitting next to a person who's a Muslim, what might be some avenues of approach and dialogue that could open doorways to spiritual sharing and witness? Are there ways in which their beliefs might predispose them to interest in the gospel, for example, works, grace, submission, freedom, or topics best to avoid? Darcy says, unless the Holy Spirit is literally compelling you to proselytize, I would say don't worry about it. Just say hello, introduce yourself, and comment on what book they're reading or the weather or anything you would normally say to someone at a bus stop or waiting in the dentist office. Keith says, Christians have too often gone for the short game of attempting quick conversions. These don't tend to last, although God occasionally works in mysterious ways. Instead, I try to practice the presence of Christ in a space, as Jesus may have something for me to learn about faithfulness, empathy, or love from the person who I'm with. Often this means asking questions if the opportunity presents itself, because people are fascinating and complex, and I'm likely to learn something. Or I might just keep quiet as an introvert. God's still working on me, smiling. Question, were there initiatives you took in terms of reaching out that seemed to start to bridge the gap and were well-received in the direction of forming a relationship? Darcy says, there was no agenda in my becoming friends with these people. It is hard to know who initiated the friendships because they happened organically by having a common interest or goal, by proximity, by some shared experiences and honest conversation. Never did they try to convert me and I never tried to convert them but we were able to talk openly and honestly about our own faith and experiences, values and traditions. I learned a lot about what foods they could eat, which ones they couldn't, and which fell into a gray area, since most of our meetings were potlucks. I learned a bit about the assumptions made about them, how people would assume they weren't Canadian, but immigrants, how people think the hijab, the head covering, is oppressive, and how they oppress women. Most of them were highly educated with advanced degrees. All of them wore a hijab. Darcy goes on to say, if you want to know how to love your Muslim neighbor, you have to stop trying to research them and start talking to them. You can love them by speaking up when someone makes an unfair assumption about them. You can step in if you see someone being teased or harassed because of how they dress. You can start by saying hello and building a friendship based on common interests. They honestly aren't that hard to find. 
Just be open and curious, ask questions. I think the best way to love your Muslim neighbor was summed up in a story one of my friends posted on social media the other day. She wrote, I shared with my neighbor my teen's fear of walking outside. She replied, I will walk with her. And for that, this mama's broken heart is grateful and hopeful. Our goal as Christians should be just that, to be the neighbor that brings gratitude and hope to those around us. Last question, how does the imago dei, the image of God in every person, call for our respect and esteem, even for those that are very different from us and may not share our belief system? Keith says, in terms of our belief in the imago dei, we have a lot more in common with Jews and Muslims than not. We share many of the same stories around how the world came to be, how God created us in his image. In interfaith settings, I am so often struck by the way these conversations strengthen my understanding of my own faith, along with learning about the faith of others. Whereas so much of the world operates from a materialistic framework, there is a respect and a wonder that we share with several other faith traditions about how incredible it is to receive our lives and our humanity as a gift to be shared with others. Then, as a Christian, I am further captivated at the thought that through Christ we were all created, and through his incarnation we receive a new way to be human together, a way that doesn't bowl others over, but seeks to love my neighbor and learn how to love them better each day, no matter the differences we might encounter. Let's pray. We bless you, Heavenly Father, for being who you are, three in one, a loving personal community since before the world began. Thank you for sending Jesus to suffer and die so we might be forgiven and brought into that precious, dear fellowship. You have so loved us sinners despite all our faults. We thank you for our neighbors, whether Muslim or other faith background. Deepen our relationship with them that they might begin to see some of your love within us as they interact with us. Guide our conversation so we may become across as true friends, not bent on an agenda, but sharing your very real love and hope and grace. Draw them to yourself and show them Jesus is the one who can truly save them and give them assurance of eternal life. In his name we pray. Amen.